Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I am your host here at the Velocity Cycling Podcast, where our one goal is to get you to fast faster. There is no one way to have great cycling performance. What works for some of us may not work for others. We really want to expose you to some of the greatest minds in sports performance. And hopefully, we can try to figure out what works best for you to meet your goals and to meet your genetic potential. We're going to do one job and we're going to try to do it the best we can. And that is get you to fast, faster. Hello and welcome to the Velocity Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Ventura, and we have one goal, and that's to get you to fast faster. This is our 10th episode. Now, I know you shouldn't make a big deal about only 10 episodes, but this is a big deal for two reasons. One, it's a 10. It's a zero, right? It's a, it's a milestone for us, and we really like to support milestones here at Velocity. But two, we have an absolutely incredible guest to kick off our 10th episode, and that is one Mr. Ashton Lambie. Ashton, thank you so much for being a guest on the Velocity Podcast, and thank you so, so much for recording eight incredible classes on the Velocity platform. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been awesome recording here the last two days. Yeah. It has been so much fun getting to know you. The staff has gotten to know you, and you know, just for everybody listening, I'm sure you all know who Ashton Lambie is. He's a very recognizable figure. He's got an incredible mustache. The mustache actually has a name. What's his name? Gerald. Gerald, Gerald the yeah. mustache. And, you know, Ashton is 28 years old. 30. I'm 30. 30 years old. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's 30 years old. Um, and Ashton is not only the fastest man to ever ride four kilometers under four minutes, by the way, not only our current world pursuit champion, those are great accolades and, and he should be very proud of them. But what really stands out to me, because I've interviewed a lot of great athletes in my day, is his nature, is his smile, is his kindness, is his, um, his excitement to, to ride his bicycle, to spread his knowledge, um, and just to be a unique individual with his own ideas on how this sport should go. And it's refreshing as all get out. You know, I grew up in an era that was very competitive, very cutthroat, um, very difficult. And, and to see his zest for life, his smile, his happiness around a sport that really, really, really gives us our licks from time to time. It's a tough, tough sport. is so refreshing and so exciting. So a couple of the things we're going to get out of Ashton today. One of them is nobody knows how to go fast like Ashton Lambie. I mean, he's proved that to the world. He's proved that to the world record books. He's incredible. And we're going to teach all of you what he obsessed about when it comes to speed. But the second thing we're going to get out of Ashton, what I'm really excited about is how he's managed his balance of life, how he's managed to find so much joy in such a difficult sport. So we're going to start with the first one. We're going to start with speed. Now, Ashton, it's not been that long. You won the world championships just a few months back and you set the world record just a month before that. Yeah. Talk us through when you had that first thought of winning the world championships and when you had that thought of, of potentially setting the new world pursuit record. Cause this isn't the first time you've done it, right? Yeah, correct. Um, so that's this, this last time was my fourth time breaking the pursuit world record. Um, the first time I did it was in 2018 yep. at the same, same location at a uh, Pan American championships um so that was starting my second season with the u.s national team and we were down there racing um you know pursuit team pursuit um and individual pursuit those were the only two events i i really do and yeah that was kind of that was one where um some of my previous results had kind of influenced how i how i thought that was going to go um as I'm sure you guys are familiar with, like, there's, there's always that sort of like, okay, where are we at relative to the fitness level? So like, am I peaking for this event? Am I training through this event? Like, how's everything looking? Um, and so for me, my, my track journey started kind of when I won my first individual pursuit national title in 2017. And so I went to LA and rode a 429 which sounds incredibly slow. Like 
should take a snack if I'm going to be out there. That oh, oh, let, let me just stop right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. He go won ahead. his first national championship in 2017. I believe yeah. you raced. I, I believe earlier that year, you may have just started track racing on the grass tracks in, in Kansas, right? It was the previous summer before. So I, that was the summer of 2016. I went and had like, I did really well in the, at the grass track in Kansas and had this grand idea of like, oh, I'm going to try and go to the Olympics. And there were all these little steps I had to get to. Um, you know, I had to hit the category I needed to race at nationals. I had to win nationals. I had to go to world cups. I had to go to world championships and then maybe I'd be able to go to the Olympics. So all of that kind of happened. Uh, I didn't end up going to the Olympics, um, but not to your fault. Cause you, there was no, there wasn't three guys that could keep up with you. Well, I mean, a team pursuits, a team pursuit, like, um, you know, it does take four guys to make it or not make it hundred percent. So yeah, we didn't have the team to make it. And, uh, that's just how it goes, man. So Lawrence, uh, Kansas, 2016 yeah, yeah. national champion a year later, 2017. Yep. So just that jump in itself from, from getting on a track bike for the first time, what was that like on a grass track? I mean, how was it? Tell us about that first experience. Yeah. So that the grass velodrome in Lawrence, Kansas is basically like, it only exists for about six weeks a year in between the first cut of hay and the second cut of hay. When like the grass is still kind of short, they let somebody mow the track. Um, basically you're out there with a lawnmower and a piece of string mowing the pole line and that's it. Like there's no banking, there's no nothing. It's not like rolled like a golf course. Um, it's, like the pole lane is literally just a little dirt rut from people riding over it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. So it's super bare bones. Um, but it's fun, you know, you're out there on like a nice summer evening and man, it's really pretty out there. And, uh, it's a blast. I, I really, I really enjoyed getting to learn on that. And it's, it's really, um, I mean, you go around the corners at full speed, you don't have that banking to kind of hold you in there. It is, but you also can't go that fast. You know, like I, I, I might have the, still have the KOM at like 30 miles an hour. So, Got I mean, it. it's quick, but like if you're doing a points race or an elimination race or something, you're cruising around at like 15 to 18 miles an hour, Got which it. is also really nice because, you know, if you crash on a track, if you're crashing on concrete, that really hurts. But, you know, you're, you're cruising around at 15 miles an hour and you fall over in the grass and you're like, Oh man, you just get back up and keep going. It's not too bad. You're not getting splinters. Like on the wood tracks, you're getting like sod stuck in your ear. Right, 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 right. So yeah, the barrier to entry for that is really nice. Um, it was a great track to learn on and like a great environment. Everyone was really supportive. Um, yeah. And a buddy of mine, let me borrow his surly steamroller. Uh, so that's like a track bike. It's the perfect track bike for a grass track because it can clear 38 millimeter tires. So we were basically running cross, like file tread cross cyclocross tires. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you're not and running what sort of gear. Well, are you running like a 5014? Uh, I don't remember the, the chain ring cog. It was like, I remember I was on an 88 inch gear and that Got was it. like, big that was a huge gear for that track yeah that's like a 51 15 yeah that's that's a yeah yeah because i mean if you're only going 18 19 miles an hour that's a low rpm on a velodrome yeah yeah that's true yeah yeah so kansas national champion the next year in california then when did you break the record the first time so i broke the record the year after that um and that was kind of where i was leading with that was that you know i peaked for my first national championship um, and wrote a 429. And then the next year I was training through it because I really wanted to do well in Aguas Calientes. Like I'd gotten fifth, I think the year before at Pan American championships for my first Pan American championships. And I was like, man, I really think I could win this. Like, I want to give it a good go. There's some really good Canadian riders. Um, and I think I did like, like a 420 or something, so I was like, man, you know, like that was, I did a 420 while I was training through it. So, you know, basically I, I had one day off, uh, to, to sort of freshen up for that event. Um, and then to just throw out a 420, I was like, oh man, that's pretty good. <laughs> like, 
you know, you could, you could sort of round, you know, there's enough rounding errors in the math of like, what am I going to do it? If I peak for an event, what am I going to do at altitude? Um, that, you know, in the back of my mind and I'd talk to my coach and I was like, man, there's like a 20% chance I could break the world record. Like it had already, it was at 410 at the time. And I was like, man, you know, like if I had a good day, maybe a taper gives me another three to four seconds and altitude gives me, you know, another five to six seconds, like hypothetically it could happen. But it was just such an unknown unknown. You know, this was like, I'd raced maybe 10 individual pursuits. Um, but I put it out there, uh, rode the splits that I needed to, and it happened. And that was huge. Um, yeah. So after that, you know, I spent a lot of time racing and training with uh, the British trade team who bought bike, which has been a huge innovative force in track cycling. Um, I learned a ton with them about like watts per CDA, um, different techniques, different strength training techniques. I'd worked with um, a strength training coach, Chris Del Sega Athletic Strength Institute for a few years at that point. And then the, the sub four thing really became in my mind, a possibility after I got second at Berlin world championships in 2020. So that was one of the last track races we did before, before COVID started shutting all the racing down. And it was one where I think a lot of people missed the result because it was like, Oh, I got silver to Filippo Ghana who had also broken the world record. Um, so he lowered it to a 4019. I'd lowered, you know, we'd taken turns lowering it a few times between um 2018 and 2020. And the big the big result for me, like A, that was my first world championship medal, but I also rode a C level 403. So my previous PB before I went there was a 405 in Bolivia. So massive altitude gains. Um and then after Bolivia, the rest of that season played out. We didn't make it. We knew at that point um, that we weren't going to make it to the Olympics. And so I was like, okay, you know, work through all the emotions associated with that. And then it was like, oh, well, I can spend the rest of the season just training for IP. Um, so dip, a slightly different training. It's still a 4K event, but the training for an individual pursuit is slightly different from training for a team pursuit. And so that was kind of a, a proof of concept for me of like, okay, well, if I'm just training for individual pursuit, this is the kind of time I can do, which is awesome. So, I mean, a sea level 403, I was like, oh, well, if I can get to Mexico, like that's looking pretty good for a sub four. Wow. Um, that was, that was awesome. So, yeah. And just, I just want to give some people some perspective here. Um, track racing, you know, if you're not a track racer, the pursuit is four kilometers long. You yeah. start from a standing start and you accelerate a really big gear as quickly as you can out of the seat for the first, I don't know, quarter, half a lap. And then you settle into this really aerodynamic position and it's just you against the clock. Um, and you go as fast as you can for four kilometers, staying as aero as you can, as low on the track as you can. And your time after that 4K is your time. Yep. Um, Filippo Ghana, um, as, as you may know, um, more than Ashton Lambie is... Uh, a, a European pro on the Enios team that's, you know, won countless stages in big races. I think he's Ages had the, the pink jersey in the Giro for one of the time trial, maybe even. And he's just an absolute juggernaut Italian superstar. Um, kind of like Boardman was in back in the day when the hour record was happening. Mm -hmm. And now he's got this American, Ashton Lambie, who, who is, who is, I mean, I'm just going to make a crazy parallel. Don't take anything more than Graham O'Brien like comes out of nowhere. You're not the first person to say that. Yeah. I'm not. Okay. And, and I, why well, did I, I just, Graham O'Brien has his own, his own world and own life and own individual. Ashton's definitely his own individual, but he's a fairly unknown person that said, Hey, I'm just going to go break the world record in the in yeah. An hour. Yeah. And he went and did it. And he right. beat this juggernaut, Chris Boardman, with all this funding, all this training, all this tech behind him. Yeah. And they kind of bounced back and forth for a few years, going back and forth, kind of like Ghana and Lambie over these yeah. last, you know, I'd say a year, year and a half. But the mm -hmm. real interesting thing about this is, is he was on a grass track 
2017, Filippo Ghana is a ridiculous athlete, but this guy's yeah. probably been since youth trained and perfected and schooled and had opportunities until he's at where he's at today. It's just a real different path to get to the exact same result, which is going back and forth, breaking the world record, which to me is one of the coolest stories cycling has had in the last 20 years. It's just now starting to come to the forefront because COVID basically squashed cycling during this really cool rivalry, you know, just yeah. before and just after it. So to me, this is about as pure as cycling gets the four kilometer pursuit, very similar bicycles, one gear, no shifting, one track, you know, granted, no external levels, factors. Things, but they both compete yeah. at the world champions on the same track. And it's just mono a mono who can go faster. Yeah. And not only did Ashton break the world record at Aguas Calientes, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but he also beat him in the world championships, I believe a month later. Thereabouts. Yeah. They're about a month later. Yeah. And which to me, you're talking, I'm talking about, you're talking about one of the greatest, most powerful track riders to ever set foot on a velodrome. Um, yeah. He's, 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 I mean, he almost every single pro tour time trial, he wins or gets second multi-world 100%. champion. Yeah. Yeah. And Ashton Lambie in 2017 was on the grass tracks in Kansas and he took on this juggernaut. I don't want to say it's David and Goliath, but it is kind of like David and Goliath. And he came home with the world championship stripes on his back and talk about that moment, what that meant to you and that, that rivalry that's starting to brew up. Yeah. I mean, it was unexpected to not have him in the gold medal final with me. Um, so I raced, uh, John, another Italian rider, Jonathan Milan, super young guy, um, at the world championships this year or last year in Roubaix. Um, but it was one of those where, so the way individual pursuit works, you have a qualifying round in the morning. And so you're, you, they usually start you two up. So two people on the track, um, and you have to complete that one for time, even if you catch the guy in front of you, which is technically like how the individual pursuit is supposed to work. You, you're chasing each, each rider is chasing the other one and you're pursuing the other person. So if you're in a final where it's like you're racing for a medal and you catch the other rider, the race is over. You don't have to finish the 4K. It rarely happens, um, especially at an event like World Championships. Like everyone, you have to be eight seconds up on the next guy to catch someone roughly. Um, so the way the uh, the qualifying works is that like it's it's generally by UCI ranking. So the faster riders go towards the end. Um so when I rode, I still had uh, the Swiss Claudio Imhoff and Jonathan Milan um, and Filippo Ghana still to go after me. So I, I rode and I just, you know, you can't save anything in qualifiers. And I put up the best time I could. Um, and in the, I had a pretty good catch with the rider, the German rider in front of me. So that means like as I was finishing the last kilometer, I could see him and I was starting to come up on him, but I didn't have to like swing up around him, but it gave me a little bit of draft, um, which just happens sometimes. So I knew that like that would be advantageous to my seating spot, but not necessarily a huge boost in the final because whoever was going in the final was going to be going way faster than that guy. And so, yeah, I had a pretty good time in qualifying and then, you know, everyone else went and, you know, uh, Ghana didn't break my time. Jonathan didn't break my time. Claudio didn't break my time. And I was just like, I texted my partner, Christina Birch, and I was just like, holy shit, man, like this, this could really happen, you know? Um, yeah, that was like the first time it kind of set in and then I, I guess I still haven't really processed what this did to my headspace. Um, but part of the whole, I mean, have you, have you heard the story, Robbie? No. Part of the whole um, experience of world championships for me was that she got the call that she was going to, she got accepted as a NASA astronaut candidate um, in between. Wow. Like, like wow. I, she called me to let me know in between the, the qualifying round and the final round at world championships. And so I was just like, 
Yeah, I guess uh, a jersey is cool, but like, <laughs> man. He's going to the moon. Yeah, maybe. He's going <laughs> to space. And I'm just like, well, I'm, I'm racing bikes. That's kind of fun. <laughs> but like, yeah. So, I mean, I think I had a really good mindset going into it um, and didn't get stuck too much in my own head of like, oh, man, you know, I had that catch in the qualifiers and like, there's no way I'm going to be able to hold that up. And like, I'm not going to be able to back up the final. And, you know, you get so stressed about all these things and like, you're just burning this nervous energy. I'm just so overjoyed to be able to share like that experience with her and that life with her that like, you know, it made it really easy to go line up for a final in a world championships and be like, yeah, it's cool. I just got to execute this. Like I've, I've done individual pursuits. Um, if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, still another medal, like not a ton of pressure on it. And, uh, I think that that worked out really well, but I mean, finishing it. And I remember, so the way it, the the calls work or the, the feedback that you get, cause you don't have like a computer or anything that you're looking at. So the only way, you know, your speed is, uh, a coach standing right past the start finish line yelling times at you. So like my target pace was roughly like four, seven, four, 14.7 seconds a lap. Um, and so you can, it sounds crazy, but you can feel the difference between like a four, 14.7 second lap and a 14.9 second lap. Wow. Like only two tenths of a second, but it's a pretty substantial difference. Um, and I mean, you get better at feeling it the more you do it. And then since it was a final, part of our tactic was to ride to the schedule, ride to the pace I was supposed to for the first two kilometers, the first half of the race. And then after that, he was going to call how far up or down I was on the opposing rider. And so, you know, I felt like the first two K of the race went pretty well. I was like right on schedule. The legs were feeling okay. And then I came through at two K and I was, I think like three tenths up. He was like 0.3 up. And I was like, okay, that's good. We're just going to keep cruising. Um, and then it was like two more laps at like 0.3.4. And then with six to go, you know, you're, that's when the fatigue really starts to set in. Um, and I still felt really strong. I still felt really stable. Like, um, just everything was going really well. And then that, that lead started to balloon out with like three to four laps to go. And it was like, all of a sudden it was 0.8 one second. And I was just like, this is it, man. Like I'm going to bring it home in three laps. Like we only got 45 seconds. And I mean, just to be able to, yeah, I mean, ever since I started, that was a huge, huge goal. And so to be able to, to be able to back up the world record, you know, admittedly, I did have to go to altitude and, uh, put up a, put up that time there, but to be able to back it up with a world championship against the best in the world, like felt good, man. It was huge. Just what a, a lifelong goal. What a story. And, and just yeah. to give, again, some more perspective here, um, you know, Ashton, the gear that these guys ride for, first off, they're, they're held by a machine that holds yeah. their bicycle still. Right. And, and yeah. the machine releases and then Ashton has to get a gear. I believe he wrote a 64 15 for the world record. That's right. And then I geared 15? up, I geared up for world championships. I went to a 65. 64 or 65 15 uh -huh. and that sounds kind of strange to you road cyclists and gravel cyclists think about it as a 50 11 it's a similar gear to a 50 11 which is a huge gear if you think about it most of the time we don't spend any time in our 11s when we're riding our bicycles unless we're going down 11 sounds way worse than 65 15 <laughs> no i know I'm, you're right but man like cruising around in a 50 11 just sounds brutal how about getting a 50 11 started from a dead yeah. stop that sounds yeah. brutal yeah so so basically what he does is he uses every ounce of energy in his body his arms his shoulder his back his legs everything he has to get it up to speed then they basically ride around at 40 miles an hour. I mean, the average speed for a four minute 4K is 37.3 miles an hour. That's the average speed. And you got to figure he's starting from zero. 
So it takes a lap or so to get up to speed. So he's over 40 miles an hour or right around 40 miles an hour for four kilometers. Now, most people riding their bicycle on a flat road with no wind can't even get close to 40 miles an hour. And the fact that you can hold that for four minutes is just a mind blow to me. Um, And that's kind of the next area I want to get to, Ashton, is, is what are the elements that you had to focus on, that you had to be meticulous about to get yourself to be able to hold 40 miles an hour for four minutes? Yeah, uh, that is a great question. Um, And something that I really learned a lot from uh, my time with Hube Watt Bike and specifically Dan Bingham, um, there's really two two ways to look at at the individual pursuit or like what goes into speed. Um, And you can look at power in and you can look at power out. So power in would be your training, your nutrition, your strength work, um, being stable on the bike, just putting power into the pedals, like having stiff shoes, like stuff like that. Um, Anything to maximize your energy into the bike. So part of that is like doing a lot of gym work, um, doing all the specific training I need to do fueling properly. Um, really the gym work was probably the biggest part. Um, having that, that stable platform that your legs are pushing off of and eliminating those power leaks is huge. Um, and then the other half of that equation is power out. So the power that's coming out from the pedals and crank, all of it needs to go to propel you forward. Um, and so eliminating anything that doesn't do that the biggest thing is drag. So drag is because frontal area is an area it's squared. Um, drag increases exponentially as you go faster. So you don't have to put out that much more power to go from 12 to 15 miles an hour, but you have to put out a, a shot of power to go from 35 to 38 miles an hour. It's a huge difference. So I had, uh, a lot of control over my, like all of my equipment, like skin suit, shoes, uh, shoe cover, helmet, um, the bike, the wheels, the tires, like all of that stuff. I was lucky enough to be able to have sponsors that I worked with um, and companies that I worked with to develop some of that stuff and test some of that stuff and good testing protocols to, to get that stuff dialed in and just be as fast as possible. Now, when you talk about weight work and intervals, yeah. Just give us an idea of some of the key things that you did that gave you that solid mm-hmm. structure that gave you the power necessary to get there. And then I want to talk about some of the things on the power outside. Like what things did you discover that you said, oh, wow, I can save this on drag or I can save this if I just, you know, put this kind of helmet on and like walk us through that process because you just don't yeah. break the world record by guessing at things and just kind of like having people give you free stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the gym work, I mean, I feel like squats get a lot of hype. You know, everybody wants to do big squats. Um, I think one of the, in cycling specifically, one of the most underrated lifts is deadlifts. Like trap deadlifts are good, but man, like if you can pull some serious weight in a deadlift, like you're going to go faster on a bike because Love it. That is the same. It is almost to a T the same body motion you have when you start a big gear. You're you're pulling up with your hands. And if you do a deadlift properly, you're not just pulling the bar off the ground. You're pushing the ground away from you, which is exactly what you do in the pedals on a start. And you're also driving your hips forward to bring that bar up. So it's that triple extension. And it's that feeling of like, pushing the ground away with your feet, pulling up on the bar and driving those hips forward. And it's just that it's that full body stability because you can work on all that stuff separately. But like if your body doesn't know how to generate that amount of force at the same time and consecutively like head to toe, you're not going to be able to put it all together on the bike. Um, So I think do deadlifts. I think a lot of people are also really scared to lift heavy. Like I, 
people think they're just going to get ripped or they're like, Oh, I don't want to put on muscle mass. Like, dude, if it was that easy to put on muscle mass, like I'd be yoked and I'm not <laughs> like, it's hard. It's super hard to get huge. Yeah. Uh, like you're not going to go to the gym and pull some heavy dead, pull a set of five by five deadlifts and just magically like get five kilos of muscle. Like it's super hard, Yep. but you are going to get that neurological drive to, um, push down on those pedals really hard and your body doesn't know the difference. This is something I really learned from my strength coach was like, if you, uh, cause I would go do, um, like heavy squats and heavy deadlifts, probably one or two days out from competition, pretty, con pretty consistently, but I'm doing them. I'm getting there. I'm warming up and I'm doing the lifts and I'm getting out of there. I mean, we're talking like 40 minute workout max, um, where we're doing sets of three, two, one deadlifts. And they're also partial range of motion. So I'm not deadlifting from the ground because that's not what cyclists do. Um, that's not the specificity of like an on the bike start. I'm doing rack pull deadlifts and same with inertia squats. I'm doing, I'm starting with the bar on the pins, maybe that getting that knee angle, the same it would be for on the bike. And I'm practicing driving up because that's what we do on the bike. And your body doesn't know whether you're pulling a barbell from the rack or whether you're pulling the handlebars to do a standing start. Like it's all the same thing. Yep. So I, I think those are the yep. two big things you can do. Yeah. For gym. Work. Those, I mean, I, I love that. I am of the exact yeah. same mindset that you have to lift heavy. You have to teach your muscles to work together to yeah. produce force. And yeah. if you can do that, it's not only going to help in the start of a pursuit, it's also going to help in the last 20 miles of dirty Kansas when 100%. your muscles are fatiguing. So love, 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 love that huge pro tip. Deadlift, squat, heavy weight, be safe. I work up to it, of course. Have some, totally. have, have, have the right um, eyes looking at it. You have to have good form. You saw how important his form was. He talked about form, partial. So like, he really, really focused on that because he knows if he gets hurt, the whole thing's goodbye. But um, yeah. that's beautiful. I love that. That was great. Now, how about on the uh, uh, actual workout that you do on the bicycle to produce power? Yeah, one of the this is one of the ones I recorded actually was uh, like the broken five case. That's a workout I came up with um, with our coach at the time, Gary Sutton, who I remember after Berlin 2020, like I came into his office and he was like, mate, you're the the two and a half K world champion. <laughs> like we got to get you, we got to get you to the 4k. And so, um, I think whatever the, the workload you want to do or whatever your target power is, um, if it's a short event, I don't think you need to do the full event. I never did four minute efforts like in between racing. I never did a standing 4k ever. Um, I think it puts a lot of pressure on those efforts and it can like really mess with your head, whether you have a good day or a bad day. If you have a good day, you're just like, Oh yeah. Like maybe, you know, like maybe the training's going well, maybe I went too hard this day. Maybe I'm not saving enough for racing. Like there's just so many ways you can get in your head if you do the full run through, but split it up, you know, do a flying three K and then do a standing one K like you're effectively getting the same workload as a four K pursuit but you get a break in the little smaller sections. And I would say the same thing with whatever kind of intervals you want to do. Um, like break it up into smaller sections. If you've got a 40 K time trial that you're doing, don't go out and do a 40 K time trial to train for it. Do like four 10 K time trials and do all of them a little bit over what your 40 K like power is going to be. Um, building up the time in that zones and the time with those sensations and really sitting with that power, like that's huge. It's so important. And, and, and I just want to emphasize again, the eight classes that Ashton did for us are phenomenal. He tells stories. He gives you the, the back, the backstory about what, why this workout is effective. One of the great things about the velocity platform is you can really learn from people like Ashton. And he really took advantage of that. He create, created eight incredible workouts. Some of them that were really focused on kind of the training that he did for the pursuit, but he taught you how to apply it to if you're doing gravel racing, you know, time trials, yeah. whatever. He does a really, really nice job of that. And Ashton, talk a little bit about 
how you use the platform to really kind of get your message across. Cause I took your class. I mean, I took your live class yeah. and it was terrific because you really kept me in that cadence range that you wanted me to go. I think there were these five minute chunks slightly above your threshold. And I really focused on my cadence and you kept me in the pocket there. Well, it's funny because uh, I was talking with Christina about it. Um, like I, I always have this kind of internal chatter going on when I'm doing these workouts. Like if you're on the track um, and you're, you're just cruising around again, you're only getting feedback every 15 to 20 seconds. And so there's just like a lot of time where you're just, you're kind of hurting and you're like, Oh man, this is hard. But like, there's always something to work on. There's always stuff to focus on and there's always stuff to think about. And so I felt like, uh, these workouts are really just, just me saying the stuff that pops into my head, just saying it out loud, because there's always something I'm trying to work on. Um, if I'm going to be there doing the work, like I'm going to be working on something, you know, like, why am I doing this workout or what's the point of it? Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it was a really good opportunity to just kind of be able to share that and, uh, talk out loud of what I'm normally thinking on a ride. Yeah. And the nice thing about it is, is what you have amassed in terms of your understanding of how to ride properly. I mean, doing a workout, yeah. if a coach tells you to do a workout and as you do five intervals, five minutes long each, you could probably execute on that. Okay. But now if you have a coach telling you why and how to do it a little bit better and giving you a little bit of motivation, don't you think it's a lot easier to execute and get more out of the workout? If you have a coach like yourself, yeah, explaining totally. some of the details around it. Cause there's, there's like stuff that you might be thinking about and you're not sure what the right way to do it is. Um, and that's kind of what I would say is like a known unknown where like, you know, that, you know, that you use your knees to pedal, but you don't know what to do with them. And then there's like the unknown unknown where there might, you might not even think about your knees when you're on the bike and you don't know what you're supposed to do with them. So I think, um, there's a lot of opportunities for improvement and learning about what to focus on and just, yeah, what to improve. The breath and holding the can in my stomach. I mean, like I thought some of those breathing techniques and, and just securing your pelvis and yeah. really creating a, a solid foundation to push off of was a lot that I got from your classes. I really think from a technical all, perspective. Yeah. There is a lot to be learned on how to pedal efficiently. Like you said, power out. Let's go there now. Let's talk about the power out piece. Like how did you, how did you get granular as it relates to reducing drag? I mean, and friction in the chain and all that stuff. Like what did you do to make sure you, you made sure you had the fastest setup you could possibly have? Yeah. I mean, some of that was, um, I would say there were two parts of that. Like some of it was testing. Um, and having good testing protocols that I've learned from my time with Hubwatt bike. So honestly, I didn't ever, I've been in a wind tunnel once. Um, I am not a huge fan of it. I think it, it has a purpose and that purpose is to test equipment in a very controlled environment. And a track is a very controlled environment, but it's also kind of out of control because people riding bikes is not a controlled environment. And so I think there's stuff you can learn from the wind tunnel. I don't think it's the do all end all as far as testing. So when I say the two parts were one testing stuff myself, um, testing different positions, different skin suits, different helmets, different tires, like all this stuff. And then part of it was like learning from that. Um, and working with sponsors or mechanics or uh, other folks in the industry that I trusted, you know, when um, Victoria tells me like, Hey, we created this new tire. Like, I know you've been riding the Pista speed. This one's even faster. We got the white paper here. Here's our testing protocols. I'm like, great. I don't need to test this tire. I trust that you guys did it. I trust that you did the right tests. Like I would love to ride these tires if you can get me some like, you know, stuff like that and being able to to build relationships like that where you trust the people to do the testing to the same standard that you yourself would do. I was that same way with Zip. Um, that was a big change for me was to get the new, uh, the new Argon that uses Zip discs and to ride those down in Mexico and Berlin was huge. And, uh, you know, Zip sent me over all the data. They sent me over all the white papers that they did. And I was like, 
man, this adds up. Like I'm super excited to get on these wheels and, uh, They've got, you know, a proprietary wheel and front end for that bike. It's super, super narrow and it's super, super fast. And it's a little bit different from what everyone else is doing, but it's one where I trusted them and I trusted the the testing and the data that they provided. And I knew enough from my own testing experience to be able to like analyze that with a little bit of a critical eye and not just blindly buy into it. And so that was the other half of that was like testing, learning from testing, um, and learning how to read other people's tests as well. How about the helmet and how about the position on the bike? How did you dial yeah. that in? Um, that was a little, a little bit trickier. Um, cause some of that is power output. So the, you know, I think Watts per kilogram is a really common metric. Like everyone knows Watts per kg on the, the chart. Yeah. Um, and I think what we'll move towards is, more people looking at watts per CDA. Um, so obviously, you know, you can wad yourself up in a little ball and you're going to lose watts, but your CDA is going to be great. Or you can sit with flat skis and like you're sitting up and you're just pushing mad watts, but your CDA is crap. And so there's a middle ground there of like having a low CDA and still being able to produce watts. Um, some of that's testable and some of that's trainable. Like you can train yourself to put out more Watts in a crunched up position. And so that was, and it's kind of one of those things like Watts per kilogram. I mean, I'm sure you've dealt with this before where the math usually works out that like, if you lose a little bit of wattage, but you lose a couple kilograms, your Watts per kg is going to go up. Right. And Watts per CDA is the same thing. If you lose a little bit of Watts, but you get more arrow, your Watts per CDA is going to go up. So just like, just crumple me up, you know, especially then, at 40 miles an hour, hundred percent. It's huge drag. When you're going up a climb. So, it doesn't really matter, but yeah, I mean, yeah. every, that, that was my whole point is that CDA is so critical at the speeds you're going. That yeah. Like even Massive. the slightest. Yeah. I mean, so. so we tested different helmets in different positions. Um, like one of the things I learned, uh, was that there wasn't necessarily a fastest helmet. Like that's always, that's kind of a red flag for me now. If someone's like, oh yeah, we got the fastest helmet on the market. It's like, ah, no, you don't like different <laughs> helmets are different, faster or, or different helmets are faster or slower for different people yep. in different positions. Um, I feel like that's becoming a little bit more accepted and yeah, like same thing with skin suits and socks to some extent. Um, but yeah, I think getting that position dialed, learning how to put power out in that position. So training in that position, I trained, I got an adapter to run my track bike on a tax. Um, and that made a huge difference, like being able to spend time in that position, putting out the, the pursuit power I needed. And then um, like, yeah, just tailoring everything else I could to that position. So not just getting the fastest skin suit, but getting the fastest skin suit in that position in that at that speed at 60 feet an hour. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Love yeah. it. So that I think the big takeaway there is, you know, we focus so darn much on, and this just isn't for the pursuit. This is, this is even sitting in a Peloton CDA yeah. plays a humongous role. Huge. I mean, I think, I think the, the takeaway that hopefully everybody understands in this one is CDA is enormous and anything you can do to reduce it, is a tremendous savings, whether it's you're saving, you're going the same pace at significantly lower power outputs, or you're able to achieve significantly higher speeds at the same power outputs. But either way, I think having that in your brain all the time, and it's not just equipment, it's just how you present yourself to the wind. Like Ashton can feel that drag. He understands when something is out of alignment or he can be faster. And that's, a, that's something he's worked on and he's crafted. You can work on that exact same skill as well. By just practicing getting smaller, practicing going a little faster, using your power meter, making small changes and seeing the speed change a little bit at the same power output. Those are things that you should be cognizant of almost all the time, as much as you're cognizant of power to weight. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, before we go any further, I'm just going to ask two quick questions. One is, what turned you to track? I mean, I know you've done dirty cans before, had some success in some endurance races. What got you 
crossed over to the track and, and you kind of found your wheelhouse. And then secondly, I just want to make a mention. You mentioned Christina a couple times. Christina is Ashton's partner. She was also, I believe, a world champion in the team women's team pursuit or a national champion. Uh, multi-time national champion and Olympic long team member. Yeah. Multi-national team champion, Olympic long team member, uh, which is incredible because that is just an incredible accomplishment on its own, but yeah. ultimately was selected to be one of our nation's astronauts uh, over yeah. the last 12 months. I think it's one of two positions they opened up recently, right? Is that it? Or uh, No, they actually selected a new class. So she's one of 12. One of 12 astronauts. Now, how many people are in a class? I mean, how many people are in the, in the, I mean, that's out of a lot of people, a lot of candidates. I mean, 12,000 people applied. 12,000 people. Yeah. And she was one of 12 selected and mm -hmm. she is a national cycling. I, for me, I can't, I can't be more proud of a cyclist becoming it's an astronaut nuts, just for our sport man. in general. Yeah. How cool is that? So cool. Yeah. I mean, that is a special thing. You win the world championship. She becomes, gets one of 12 spots out of 12,000 to be an astronaut. What yeah. a month you guys, what a day you guys had. Yeah, we, it was a day we put it on the calendar. I don't know what we're going to, we're not going to be able to top it for sure. I don't think anybody's going to be able to top that yeah. day, but how did you get involved in track racing? Um, and you were, you were doing dirty cans and some longer stuff. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I raced ultra distance, like all through college and for a few years living down in Kansas. Um, I was like, I've always been a pretty stocky guy. Like I just carry muscle pretty, pretty easily. I've never really been, you know, uh, as wiry as a lot of those other ultra distance guys. And so I was always kind of in the back of my mind wondering like, Oh, well, maybe there's something that's like a little bit more power oriented that I could do better at. And then I also remember um, in, well, it was Dirty Kansas at the time, but Unbound like 20, maybe 2016 when I started the on the grass track, it was, I, you know, I did the full, like full season, full base season. And I tapered for this event, you know, spent six months training for it. I was like, man, I'm going to do really well. And it rained the night before. And I broke my hanger like five miles in. And I was just like, that's six months, just like down the drain. What the, what the hell? And so I was like, man, it'd be really nice to get into something where like the variables, the external variables are a little bit more controlled. And so, uh, yeah, that led me to track, you know, you, cause you can peak and taper for a, you know, an entire season and it's, it's going to happen. Like the event's going to go off, you know, you're going to get it or you're not. Now, do you miss, uh, so obviously your, your physiology was a big part of it, right? You're significantly more fast twitch muscle fiber in, in nature to go that fast for that long. You have to have really good glycolytic, um, capabilities and yeah. obviously long distance endurance events don't, you know, lend itself to that type of body style. So great job for you figuring out what type of athlete you are naturally gifted with and kind of finding that lane, but also keeping it in the same realm, which is cycling. Um, which, which is, which most people don't figure that out. You know what I mean? They just, they keep doing totally. something out of a passion play and you did a nice job pivoting. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean, doing, doing something because you're passionate about it is not a bad reason to do it. Absolutely. Like whether you're good at it or not, you should, you should do it if you're passionate about it. Now, now wait a second. So now you're going back. So you're doing the lifetime fitness thing. Yeah, you're yeah. going to take this explosive 40 mile an hour, like absolute rocket ship. And you're going to try to extend it out now to 200 <laughs> miles. How are you going to do that? And are you excited about it? And tell us about this new adventure. Yeah. So I got, I was lucky enough to get selected for the lifetime grand prix. Um, and I'm doing a full gravel calendar this year. So no track racing. Um, just going to go back to my roots and focus on gravel and other adventures and, um, you know, some of the big stuff like the grand prix series, and then also some of the smaller stuff, like, um, I'm doing some local races around Texas. Um, got some other big adventures, adventure rides planned around Texas that I'm pretty excited about. Um, and I'm sure, you know, other opportunities kind of pop up throughout the year. Like I just got back from doing the rock cobbler. That wasn't one that was on my radar a few months ago, but it, the opportunity popped up and it sounded fun and it, it sure was. And so, yeah, I mean, the training has been good. Like it's been really fun. Um, to get back and do those like really long adventure rides. Like I, I just love just 
exploring on a bike all day. And so part of that has been we moved to Houston because um, that's where the Johnson Space Center is for Christina's work. And it's my it's the first time I've ever lived in a big city. So I've I've been absolutely loving just like, oh, I'm just going to just ride through town like all day. Um, <laughs> and it's nice because obviously it's great weather. It's it's very far south. So, uh, you know, we can we can ride outside almost all the time. And. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many roads to explore and so many cool places to check out. I've, I've been loving it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's so cool that you can just say, you know what, I'm the world champion at the 4K world record holder. And now, you know what, I'm going to do 200 mile dirty Kansas because I just think it's the cool thing to do. And, and that kind of yeah. brings me to my last my last component here that I, I personally really want to learn this, because if anybody has been watching this podcast or even listening to it, they will understand very quickly how authentic you are as a person, how unique, how happy, how easy you are to talk to, but also just how kind and and gentle of a person you are. And, and, and for me, it's just so crazy refreshing to have somebody wow, thanks, that's man. accomplished what you've accomplished, be as humble and as, and as personable and as sweet as you are. And I just, I want to know how do you, how you, how you do it? Because, you know, the, the sport of cycling that I, I grew up in was much more competitive, like I said early on, and cutthroat. And I just, how do you find that balance? How do you find that joy in almost in everything that you're doing? I mean, you're coming here riding indoors for five hours a day in this yeah. room, lap, and you're smiling the whole time. Well, maybe not the whole time. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, it's, I, I just love riding, riding bikes. Like, uh, I don't know, the opportunity to, to sort of like narrow, narrow your focus a little bit and like really break something down into really small, finite parts. Um, and like be able to do something that's, that most people would say is quite easy. Um, you know, anyone, anyone could get on a bike and go ride 4k, but then like, there's, there's a real, a real, like, skill to be able to take every aspect of that um that you might not be able to get if you just like if you just did every kind of biking you could or every kind of cycling you could um but yeah i i really like getting into those those really finite details and figuring out how to maximize them um and that's something i've always i've always just really enjoyed is like kind of taking a relatively simple task and like making it the absolute best best I can do or like um seeing what other parts might not be inherently difficult when you first start but then as you like become a little bit more adept at it you learn maybe what you didn't know about aerodynamics or gym like how does gym factor into riding 4k like that that kind of stuff and so yeah I guess I've been really lucky to be able to do stuff that I'm passionate about and the the individual pursuit it worked out that I'm also pretty well suited for it and uh, had a lot of success at it. Um, and so it's kind of one of those things where it does take, it does take some energy to change that inertia where it's like, Oh, it'd be easy to just keep doing the same track training I'm doing. Um, and I'm sure I could still get a little better at it, but it's also like, I kind of did everything I wanted to do. Like, I'm not saying there's, there's nothing new to learn or nothing new to do, but it would be a little bit of a repeat of what I've done. Um, I could do it again for another year, maybe get another world championship. Maybe not, maybe lower that time a little bit, but it's not, it's not quite as, as new or exciting as getting back into gravel because I, I really miss it. Like, Gravel is something I feel really passionately about. It's something I did a lot growing up in Nebraska and Kansas. Um, and we do get to take adventures on the track, but it's different. You know, it's not like much more unpredictable, right? The track is a little yeah. bit more predictable. Yeah. Right. And so it's getting into those situations. You don't know, like um, the rock cobbler, super unpredictable. Like I was so out of my element. I remember <laughs> 
there was one point in the race where it was like, I I'd already gotten dropped from like the lead group and a bunch of people had passed me in this really, really technical mountain bike section. And there was an aid station where they had like uh, propane tanks lined up and you had to throw a tire. And if you threw a tire and got it on the propane tank, you were in a raffle. Um, and so I like got off my bike and threw the tire and I was like, I don't know what this is. Like, what are we doing? And then I come around the corner and there's like this dirt shoot. And I just look at the guy in a gator and I was like, are we supposed to ride down that? And as I yelled at this, this other guy comes up behind me and just like absolutely sends it. And I was like, I am out of my element here. Like, man, this is fun. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just, it was one of those times where it was just a really natural break. And I was like, let's, like, there's just a lot of other stuff I'm passionate about and a lot of other stuff that I'm excited about. Um, and that a lot of the companies and sponsors I work with are excited about. And so that opportunity came up. I get to keep doing what I love. I get to keep riding bikes. I get to keep exploring. I get to keep learning new stuff and I'm doing it. It's awesome. I love it. Awesome. And, and let me just close with this. You know, you're going to, I mean, Ashton's got to learn how to be a better mountain biker, how to, you oh know, obviously extend out that aerobic engine. There's lots for him to yeah. get better at, which is kind of, I got to be exciting for you. Cause you know, there's a lot of growth there. And as you yeah. get better at those things, you're going to keep getting better at them. But I guess one, one question I have is why maybe not like professional road racing, um, you know, events like, you know, prologues and be putting on the, yeah there's some opportunities there. Why haven't you ever gone in that direction? And that's kind of what I'm talking about because that sure. direction's a little bit more like, as just a little bit more have to it than the gravel scene. Is that part of the reason why you're kind of pushing that away a little bit? Yeah. You're not the first person to ask that. <laughs> I did some road racing when, when I was a kid, um, and yeah, I don't know, something about it just like didn't really appeal to me where I don't want to say it's the same races every year. Like there are new races on the UCI calendar, but um, it doesn't have that same vibrancy and that excitement to me personally as gravel. Um, one of the things I really value is like my personal ability and freedom as a cyclist to do what I'm excited about. Um, and I, I think it would, it would be pretty quick that I would build resentment of like, Oh, you gotta go do these, these 10 races. And I'd be like, well, I don't want to do them just because you told me I have to do them. Like, you know, that I like, whether I wanted to do them or not, maybe they're cool races, but because there's someone telling me to do it, I'm just like, well, well, now I don't really want to do them anymore. But like the fact that I get to build my own calendar and I get to work with all these sponsors that I get to pick out and get to work with that are excited about stuff that I'm doing, um, that's huge. And I love getting the opportunity to build those relationships um, with sponsors, with other cyclists, with race promoters, with, you know, the people running the tire toss at Rock Cobbler. Like it's that that for me is like the most gratifying thing instead of like being forced into those relationships and that schedule like um i want to be able to make like very conscious decisions about all this stuff and like really control that that flow and uh what all that looks like uh that and that, and that i think is part of the reason why i feel like you have this you know just, just, just calmness about you and this happiness about you, because you might not have to do these things that sometimes are often, uh, make the sport a little bit more chore-like and less adventurous. So hundred percent. And you hear that from a lot of people that like road racing is they're, they're like, Oh yeah, well, it's a job. And I'm like, I mean, riding bikes is a job, but like, man, I love doing it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only thing I miss about, about racing sometimes is just the time with the guys, you know what I mean? Just that, that time yeah. of relationships, that fun, that training camp, that fun at these races, the excitement of kind of coming together before, during, and after a big race, but the actual racing itself is, 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 is something that probably, um, you know, I'm okay with just, you know, doing these fun gravel events and, and spending time it's with the, super fun. Yeah. yeah. So Ashton, 
thank you again. Um, thank you again for all the great, yeah. the, 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 the absolute great pro tips that you gave us during this podcast. Thank you as well for their incredible eight classes. If anybody is listening to this podcast, get on Velocity and learn more from Ashton Lambie and take his classes. He does a tremendous job. Um, and I just, I just wish you all the luck. Um, hopefully I'll see you at some of these events. I'm going to be doing some of those lifetime fitness events this year. I can't wait to see you at them. Um, but man, it was, it was sure fun having you here in Chicago. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.